know that right now, it is a very important time in the lives of SNU students. It's a very stressful time. It's a very sleepless time, a very fatigue-filled, anxiety-filled time um, for some of you who really care about your grades. And some of you who are exchange students and you get pass-fail, you're kind of just like, whatever, you know? But um, for many of you, it's a very stressful time. And um, I just want to commend you, those of you who came out to large group um, in this time, well done, you know? I know that it was, I know that it was very hard, um, but you taking that step of faith and coming out, even though you've got stuff happening, um, it's, it's a big step of faith. And I know that, like, the staff, we're, we're not that young anymore, <laughs> some of us, and we can easily forget what it may be like to be a full-time student and have so much, Michelle's like, no, <laughs> and have so much, you know, like you've got projects and essays due and it's a big deal. And so we can sometimes be disengaged from that and, you know, why aren't you guys coming out to all this stuff? Um, no, we remember, or we at least hear our stutters talk about it and we can empathize, you know. I know it's not an easy time to really put God first and, and make Emmaus and coming out a big priority in your life. And so for that, I think it's amazing. And God really honors your heart to want to hunger after him and meet with him, even in this busy time. Um, even though you're here, though, I know that many of you, for many of you, school is still very much on your minds right now. Like your assignments, your tests, your projects, your lab reports, it's just running through your mind, and you're like, oh my gosh, okay, two hours at Emmaus, how am I going to get this done? How am I going to get this done in time, right? And you're already trying to calculate, because, and you've got school on your mind, even though you're here. I know that. I know. It's midterms time, okay? Um, but tonight, <clears throat> tonight, I want to challenge each of you. I want to challenge each of us to begin to think about a different grading scale, okay? To begin to think about a different grading scale. It's easy to think about grades right now because, like, it's, it's test time, it's project time, it's essay time. It's easy to think about grades, but I want us to shift gears and think about another grading scale, okay? And in the midst of one of the most stressful and demanding times of the semester, I want you to ask yourself, two questions tonight. And if you've got a notebook, I want you to write them down, okay? Two questions tonight. I want you to ask yourself these, yourself these two questions. Number one, where do you find your value, significance, and worth, okay? Number one, where do you find your value, significance, and worth, okay? First question. And second question, how do you define real success and achievement? Second question, how do you define real success and achievement? Okay. Where do you find your significance, value, and worth? And two, how do you define real success and achievement? Significance, value, worth, we place it in so many things, okay? It doesn't matter if you're Christian, half Christian, not a Christian, whatever. If you're human, like, you place your significance and value and worth in many different things. And it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to let your heart do that, right? 
We place it in people's opinion of us. We place it in our, what our parents think and say, in what our professors think and say, in what our peers say, okay? How often do what our friends, professors, parents, people, what they think and say influence us? Quite often, you know? Maybe not all those groups, but there's usually one of those groups that stand out to us the most. And, and their opinion and what they think, we really place value on it. So if they deem us worthy or significant, then we are. And if we don't get that affirmation from them, then we're not, right? Um, what else do we find our significance in? Some of us, it's, it's performance, right? Um, our grades, our achievements, job opportunities, the things that we can put on our resume, right? We live for that, that white piece of paper and those black lines on that paper, right? What am I going to be able to put on my future curriculum vita or resume? What experiences, internships, grades, professor reports, what are the things I can put on my resume? I will live for those things. That is what makes me valuable, significant, worthwhile, okay? And I will live my life based on my future resume, okay? Do we place it on our paychecks? How much is in our bank accounts? We find significance in the amount of money we have, the amount of clothes we own, the amount of material possessions we have, right? Um, or do we place it on what connections and networks we have, who we know, where we can get with those networks and connections? There are so many areas that we as humans, we put our significance and value in. Um, and the second question, how do you define real success and achievement um, that is a very important one, right? I think, I think at this, this time in our lives, it's, it's, it's so crucial that we think about that. What is success? What is success? To me, to you, what, is, what does it mean? What is your definition of a successful life? Because right now, you're very busy with many things. And and most of you at SNU, I would say 99.99% of you are here because you are already achieving at a very high rate, comparatively speaking, to the other people in your demographic, okay? So, like, basically, um, you guys are successful, and you're moving toward a life of success, okay? Newsflash, not everybody your age goes to college, okay? If you are in the point zero two, I just made up that figure, but it's very small. If you're in that percentile that e even gets to get a college degree, you are very successful, okay? There are many people, billions of them, who've never gone to college and never will, okay? So you're already on a, a route to success, and you're filling your life now with things that will create a successful life, okay? But have you ever stopped to define it? What is success? What is the picture of success I am moving towards right now in my life, okay? Everything you're doing in your life is drawing you and moving you in one direction, in a direction that you've painted for yourself, okay? Um, is success living the kind of life we read about in entertainment magazines and on TV, you know, like with the car and the crazy big house and the clothes and, and living that extravagant lifestyle, is that success? Maybe some of us think so. Is true success graduating with the top grades, 
getting into the top company, making it big and getting a job as a lawyer, an engineer, an ambassador, whatever else your parents tell you you should do, and then, and then making enough money in that job so that you could take care of them, send them on some nice vacations because they've taken care of you, and then eventually, um, you know, they're just going to be able to brag about you to all their ajuma and ajashi friends when they go hiking. Is that success? Getting a great job and making money and having a comfortable life. Is that our picture of success? Is that what we're aiming towards? Is that what we really want? Is real success being the very best? Is it being the top performer in your class, in your year, in your company? Is being the best, pushing and striving for excellence and always coming out on top, is that success? Maybe some of us think so. What is our measure of success and what is our definition of a successful life? I think that's a very important question we can ask ourselves. I want us to pause in the midst of this month of midterms as we take all these tests and write all these papers and get these grades handed back to us that, that a lot of times it's very easy to, to put our identity and worth in them, right? Like literally, we pour ourselves out in this stuff and then we get this red mark back, right? And it's easy to say, wow, my significance is in this. My success and value and future is in this grade. It's very tempting to think that every time. And I know that right now, especially, that may be on our hearts. Um, but I want us to pause and get a kingdom perspective on these two questions, okay? A kingdom perspective on these two questions. Where we find our significance and how we measure true success. Because the way we answer these two questions will drastically influence the trajectory of our lives, okay? How we answer these two questions will drastically influence the way, the path our lives go, all right? If we don't stop and think about how we answer these two questions, we're just going to get pushed and pulled in many different directions. Or if we have a false idea of what a successful life is, we're going to be working and giving ourselves over to something and to find at the end of the day, man, this isn't real success after all. The approval of man isn't really fulfilling me after all. The approval of my parents isn't really fulfilling me after all. Getting this luxur luxurious lifestyle isn't really fulfilling me after all. So what is success then? Before we live our lives and get to that point, it may be a good idea to, to start thinking about it now, right? As younger adults, as, as college students. And so tonight, I want to confront the way the world has measured worth and success. And I want us to discover what the Word of God says about it, okay? So we're going to be looking through the Bible a lot today. And I'm actually going to be preaching from um, certain books of the Bible that if you've been in an Emmaus Familia, um, we, are, we are starting a Bible reading plan together, okay? And, and I don't want you guys to be discouraged when I say that. I was behind on, on several days, but we've all started as a familia to read certain books of the Bible together. And so I'm actually going to be preaching mostly from those passages, okay? So you will probably have read some of them, and if you didn't, it's all right, okay? There is no condemnation in the presence of the Lord. It's all right, okay? 
Um, but if you have, it's going to be cool because you could probably recount some of the things I'm going to be talking about tonight because you read it yourself. So um, I want us to open up to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Okay. Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 35. Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 35. And if you're there, I want you to look up so that I can start reading it. I'm reading from the ESV, and if you have a different version, it might be confusing. So just listen to me or, and read, or read along on your own. All right. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right? And so this is from the Gospel of Mark. And the the Gospel accounts are basically accounts of Jesus when he was on this earth, okay? There are different kinds of writing in the Bible. And the Gospels basically are, are talking about how Jesus lived, ministered, talked, what he did during his time on earth. So it's they're really cool because we can get to know Jesus very personally. We can get to know his personality, how he works through reading the Gospels, right? And when Jesus lived and began his public ministry, um, he gathered together 12 dudes, okay? 12 guys. He gathered them from fishing boats, tax collector booths. He gathered them from the most random places. They're all very different kinds of guys, most of them uneducated fishermen, not the cream of the crop, not the most well-educated, not the most articulate, okay? He gathered the hungry ones to himself, 12 of them. And then um, they followed him around everywhere, and they called him rabbi. Everybody say rabbi. Rabbi. Okay, does anyone know what rabbi means? It means teacher or master, right? Teacher or master. So they followed around a guy, and they called him teacher. Hey, teacher, okay? And this is very common back in the ancient Near East at this time. Whenever you have a good teacher, someone worth following, you would follow them around and do whatever they did, okay? You would start dressing like them, talking like them. Your, your personality would even change, and you would pick up their mannerisms, okay? You basically adopt their way of life, not just their teaching, but their way of life also. And so these guys, these 12, followed Jesus around everywhere, 
and they lived life with him. They called him rabbi or teacher, okay? And um, Jesus, he didn't just do ministry one day and then do whatever he wanted the next day. He lived his life and did ministry along the way. He would just wait for opportunities, and people would come sick. People would come blind. People would come with demonic possession. He would just talk and then a crowd would gather it just happened all the time okay so the people the disciples they went with him and then they would learn from him and relate to him just eat and be chilling on a boat the next minute they're teaching the next minute people are getting set free okay and they're all along the way just learning from their rabbi this way of life they're learning about him and jesus would he would um, speak and preach to large crowds right but then always he would pull the, the 12 aside and then he would give them like special teachings, extra teachings, right? And he would explain stuff in more detail and he would share more of his plans and share more of his heart. The 12 got extra, right? So if you guys kind of could imagine like a professor who has favorites, maybe like he teaches a big class, but then there's some that he like really helps out. It's kind of what Jesus did to these 12. He really sowed into them and wanted them to know his ways and know his heart, right? They went everywhere with him. And I want you guys to imagine that for a minute, okay? You guys have professors, some of them more enjoyable than others, okay? That's my nice way of saying (laughs) that you guys do not like some of your professors. And I want you guys to think about for a minute um, you know, imagine yourself not just enrolled as an SNU student, but imagine yourself enrolled in the rabbi school. Imagine yourself enrolled in the school of the kingdom. Imagine yourself enrolled as a student of your rabbi Jesus, okay? And just like you go to class and you learn from your professor all the vast wisdom and knowledge they have gathered over their years, you are sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning his ways, learning his wisdom, learning the knowledge of his heart, okay? And that's kind of what reading the Gospels is like. And that's kind of what I want to take us on tonight, okay? I want us to imagine learning, walking with, reaping the wisdom that Jesus gave during his time here. Because our religion is not necessarily a system of beliefs and a checklist of things we got to adhere to. It's it looks far more like a relationship. And in a relationship, it's more about knowing a person, knowing their heart, than it is about trying to believe some abstract concept. And so the more we know about Jesus, the more we can do our religion well. You know what I mean? And so we're going to learn about Jesus tonight, our rabbi, and learn about some of the lessons that Jesus teaches. And we pick up in this particular scripture with James and John, their brothers, okay? And uh, Jesus actually gives them a nickname called Sons of Thunder. And I actually want to preach a whole message on this because the two of them are ridiculous, okay? They're, they're just so stupid and bold and, like, on fire. And I think Jesus just thinks they're cute. He loves them a lot, but they're just so ridiculous. And, and basically, they're arguing about... They do this several times. Basically, they're like, um, they're arguing about who's going to sit on Jesus' right and left in his glory, okay? And they looked at all the other uh, ten disciples, and they decided, yo, like, we, they have nothing on us. Like, Jesus is going to pick the two of us for sure, okay? And then on top of that, like, their mom 
wanted that too. They, their mom told them to ask Jesus, um, hey, put my sons at your right and your left, right? So, so they're from an interesting um, family. And even the sons of thunder, sometimes some interpretations say the thunder is the mom. Like, they're, th- they're sons of this thunderous woman, and others say it's because they're just, like, thunderous. And, 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 like, you hear thunder, but sometimes there's not even lightning, and that's kind of like them, too. You just hear a lot of talk, but sometimes there's no substance. So these guys are just very, like, kind of full of hot air. They're very excited and passionate about Jesus, so that's probably why he liked them. They had good hearts and intentions, but... So basically, they're arguing who's going to be um, the top, the head, with Jesus, Okay. They're pretty sure it's going to be themselves. And um, <clears throat> and then basically I want us to step into this story with them while the disciples are having this conversation, while James and John are having this conversation, okay? And basically Jesus, it, their, their dumb questions, their pride actually opens up an opportunity for Jesus to start teaching them about what true greatness, true significance really looks like in the kingdom. Okay? And as much as schools and your grades and your GPA is on your mind tonight, um, I want you to think about your kingdom GPA. Okay? Your kingdom GPA. If you were to be graded by your teacher, Jesus, okay? All your professors are going to give you grades at the end of the semester. If you were to be graded by your teacher, your rabbi, Jesus, because you're enrolled in the kingdom of heaven, what would your GPA say? And what would your teacher, your rabbi, your professor, Jesus, say about your performance in his class? You know, in this passage in Mark, these disciples have served with Jesus for a while now. They've stayed up. They've had sleepless nights. They've They've had hungry nights. They've, they've sacrificed. They've served Jesus. They've served others. They've gone through hardship. They've done a lot of stuff. And honestly, it's very human for them to start arguing about what they get, okay? They've been serving. It's been hard. They're not half God, half fully God, fully man. They're fully human. And so a lot has been asked of them. They left everything to serve God. And it's getting hard. So why not talk about What's in it for them, okay? It's a very natural human thing to do. And, and they, they start saying, you know, man, I'm worthy of some honor. Man, I've worked harder than everybody else here. Out of the 12, I've got them beat, right? I've served you with more diligence and devotion than all of them. I deserve to be honored and on your right and on your left, Jesus. Okay, because I have been working so hard. I've been faithful. So I'm going to ask Jesus what's rightfully mine. Okay, it's easy if we really try to put ourselves in that story. It's easy to put ourselves there, right? And Jesus responds and he says, no, you can't be like that. The world looks at worth and significance and greatness like that, but you can't be like them. If you really want to be great in the kingdom, it looks completely different than the world. If you want to be great in my eyes, in your teacher Jesus' eyes, if we're concerned with our GPA in the kingdom, if you really want to be great, it's about giving of yourself. If you really want to be great, be like me. Give your own life. 
right? Greatness in the kingdom, greatness according to the grading system, not of this world but of Jesus, is opposite of what the world says. Jesus teaches us that the greatest will be the least, the servant of all. He says that greatness and A-plus in the kingdom is all about giving, okay? Mark 8, 34 and 36, Jesus says it another way. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Okay. So what is true significance and greatness in the kingdom? Lesson one from our teacher Jesus. Greatness is giving of ourselves. It's serving others. It's laying down our lives. Lesson one from our teacher Jesus. Greatness in the kingdom is giving yourself. Giving of yourself. Laying down your life. The world teaches us that if we ever want anything in life, we have got to make it happen for ourselves. We have to look out for ourselves. We've got to strive to be the best. We've got to get ahead of the game. We've got to save and gain and hold on to our dear life. And we have to take care of ourselves because if we don't, nobody else is going to, right? So we've got to look out for our best interest, our best interest alone. But in the kingdom, the more tightly we hold on to our lives, try to save our lives, the more we will lose it. The more tightly we grab onto something, the more of a guarantee that it's going to slip out of our control, right? The more we choose to lay down our lives, though, the more we choose to give and to serve, the more we actually gain. It's opposite of the world. And I don't know how it works like that, but it does. Like, I wish I could explain it because I've had seasons of both. I can't explain it. I just know it's true because... I don't know why, but the more I tried to save my life, I did lose, I lost everything. And the more I gave of myself and forgot about myself, the more I gained. I don't know how it works. Uh, That's why I know the Bible's true, okay? It's just, it's just how it is, okay? So anyway, it's opposite of how the world works. Greatness is not about what we hold on to, how much we have. It's about how much we can give away. What Jesus is teaching his disciples is that real gain comes from giving. And I don't just mean giving money, okay? Like, as soon as some Christian says give, people are like, oh, they want offerings or something. And I'm not talking about that, okay? Um, It's about putting ourselves in a constant position of laying our lives down at the foot of the cross and saying, this life, this life is not mine. It's yours, and I surrender it, I take up my cross, I follow you. Whatever you have for me, God, I'm down. This life isn't mine, it's yours, all right? That's what giving your life means. It might be money, or time, or your service, or your giftings, or whatever it may be, okay? It looks like many different things. But in the kingdom, when we give of ourselves, that's when we're the most blessed the most secure, the most safe, the most full of life and joy, all right? And it's not just about giving for the sake of giving, okay? Like, it's not 
so that we can be like Mother Teresa and have like and be really great people and people look at us and say, wow, they're so holy and nice, okay? God isn't telling us to lay down our lives and give so that we can be nice, good people. God isn't interested in making nice, good people, okay? God is interested in raising mature sons, all right? Giving isn't for the sake of just giving and giving and giving, not so we could be good, okay? It's for the, the, the whole heart of it is, is that God wants to raise mature sons. The reason that our teacher Jesus stresses giving so much is because the way we give exposes our true mindsets and hearts, okay? The way we give exposes where our heart and minds really are. It exposes it, okay? Giving doesn't, when someone gives a lot, it doesn't necessarily mean their heart's in the right place, but sometimes our attitude about giving of our lives exposes our hearts and minds. The measure we give indicates what we believe we truly have. The measure we give indicates what we believe we truly have. For example, if we believe we have nothing, we can give nothing, right? I have nothing to give. I can't give anything, right? It's very, very common sense. If we believe we have everything, we have no problem giving because we have everything, right? And the truth is, in Christ, we do have everything. So an orphan can give nothing because an orphan has nothing. But a king can give everything because a king lives in abundance, in extravagance, right? So what reality are we living by? What reality are we living in? Do we give of ourselves from the mentality of an orphan or from the mentality of a son or daughter of the king? Do we fully understand what we have gained through the cross of Jesus? It's not about how much we can give, how much money and time and whatever. It's not about that, but it's about what we believe we actually have and the posture of our hearts and our, and our heart attitude to give, right, from the mentality we carry. And so when we're asked to give our time, our money, our energy, our resources to the kingdom, whether that be through Emmaus, New Philly, your local church, to serving other people, whatever it may be, when you're asked to come out to familia, to large group, to events, what is our immediate reaction? What is our reaction to those questions? Okay? Do we instantly pull back in disgust and anger and bitterness? Okay? Do we easily start thinking, they have no idea how busy and hard my life is. I already go to large group once a week. I already go to familia sometimes once a week. I already go to church sometimes too. Like now they want me to come to 615 and pray and they want me to join a ministry team and they want me to give up three days of this weekend where I finally have a vacation to go to some retreat where I do more church stuff. Like how much do they want to take from me what about my life and my desires? What about my time? Okay? How easily is it, is it for us to fall into that kind of thinking? 
that God just wants to take and take and take. He's just going to leave us empty. And nobody cares about me, so i got to save my own life. i got to take care of myself, right? That kind of mentality, guys, as much as we all fall into it sometimes, I am not innocent, okay? That kind of mentality and thinking is from the pit of hell, okay? I have to say it because it's true. It is from the pit of hell. It's a mentality of poverty and lack. It comes from poverty and lack. The root lie is that we don't have enough or we aren't enough, period. So we can't possibly give of ourselves to God, to the ministry, or to others. If we have nothing, we can't give anything, okay? So when people ask us to give of ourselves and serve, the lie is, I have nothing to give. I have to take care of myself and hold on to what I do have, right? But the reason that often God challenges us to give all the more when we have these moments is because he wants to set us free. Often when we're the most tightly holding on to our lives, that's when God asks us to make some of the biggest sacrifices, surrender the most. And it sucks because that's like the hardest time for us to give up our lives. But the reason he confronts us then is because he wants to set us free from this kind of mindset, this type of thinking. As soon as we begin to be others-focused instead of me-focused, as soon as we begin to be kingdom-focused instead of me-focused, as soon as we begin to be Jesus-focused instead of me-focused, we get our breakthrough. We begin to enter into true joy and true rest and true peace. An example of this is when I first came to Korea. Um, I came right after I graduated college, okay? Some of you soon-to-be graduating students, Bo, Hyo's not here. Where's Hyo? Somebody call that girl, okay? Minji, okay. Well, how old are you, Minji? 23. I graduated college, and I was 21 or 22. I moved here. I was 22. I moved here when I was 22 years old, okay? And I moved right after I graduated college, And I was very idealistic. I had all these dreams. I wanted to save the world and do all this crazy stuff and and bring change, you know. And I was very passionate. And my relationship with God was fiery. But in terms of my relationship with others and with ministry, it wasn't as fiery, okay? I could say I would lay down my life in some abstract concept. Like, yeah, I would give my life to the orphan and the blind and the widow. And, like, I don't know any orphans, blind, or widow people. <laughs> like, yeah, I could do whatever. But then, like, um, when it was time for me to actually lay down my life in a practical way, oh, it got hard. I moved here right after college. And in college, I always had the excuse, no, I can't come out to your prayer meetings and your campus ministry. I've got to study. And God has called me to be a student, right? And it's true. But when I came here a month after I arrived, a month after I graduated college, got a full-time job for the first time, moved into a scary one-room apartment in this creepy area, and, and got this very tiring hagwan job, I was asked to step onto ministry part-time with Emmaus. And I thought, well, I have a heart to save the world and and for Africa and the orphans, but I have no heart for college students. Like, 
They're in college. They have phones and technology, and they have hip clothes and use hip lingo. Like, I don't want to minister to them. I want to minister to people who really need God, you know? And, like, I totally have no heart for college students. But if my spiritual leaders ask me, okay, you know, that's why I got started here. I'm just being real, okay? I love all of you guys a lot now, but, but I was thinking I'll just put in a year. I'll give, I'll, I'll give a year of my life for you, Jesus, and serve these college students, right? And I uh, found that year of my life was the hardest year of my saved life, okay? It was the hardest year of my saved life. Like, if I did not have Jesus, I don't know how I would have went on that year. It was so hard. A month after I arrived, I had to hang out with all these college, and I was a very serious, a little uptight, a little too melodramatic, you know? And I had to hang out with college students, and I had to organize events where there's pizza and dancing and, like, crazy things. And I'm like, uh, this is so not me. I want to talk about literature and other serious stuff that, that that's important, you know? And, oh, these young people, and so ridiculous, right? And then soon my Tuesdays were gone, my Mondays were gone, my Wednesdays were gone, my Thursdays were gone, my Fridays were gone. Every day of the week was gone. I was working and ministering, and, and I just was like, I have no time for myself, and ministry is taking everything from me, and these students, and honestly, I, like, my first year, my first year, I don't know if I was very good at discipling people either, because, like, it was, every student that I discipled was, was not doing well after I discipled them, and, and like, and I had, dude, that semester I had Jongmi and, and Hyojin, and then just, and then it was, you know, there's different seasons. So I was just like, dude, I'm not good at this. I don't like it. And, like, they're obviously not benefiting from me doing this. So I should just help everybody and not do this anymore. I wanted to quit so bad. I really didn't like it. And and I, I, I blamed it being on, like, oh, I'm not passionate about college students. But honestly, God is the one who leads us, directs us, and calls us. God loves college students as much as he loves orphans or any other people group. And if God has called me to them, then it's not about me not having a heart for college students. It's about me not having a heart for the things on God's heart. And so I was really just deceiving myself that semester. But uh, I think like five months after I was here, so a month after I got here, Emmaus, 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 all the time. Don't have time for myself. Don't have time for my friends, my life, my hobbies, whatever. I don't even get to read anymore, you know. And then five months after I come here, I was made welcoming team leader at New Philly Church, okay? What does that mean? It means I have to give bulletins, usher people, and befriend all the newcomers who come into the church and lead a team of people, okay? I didn't even make any friends yet, but I had to bring people into a church, and be their friend. And I just thought, God, you are so cruel to me. How could you do this to me? You don't give me any time for myself. Don't you love me? Don't you love me? I have to lead people, but I don't even have any friends yet, God. You know? And then it was so sad. And then I had to tell all these newcomers about how God loves them. The family of Christ accepts them. They're going to have deep relationships. And I, I see them. I see them with time to actually make friends. And I was like, they have friends, and I don't even have friends yet because I'm just serving you all the time, God. <laughs> you know? That whole year was miserable. And... And then, um, 
And I would just go home and cry and be sad. And it was horrible. And then, and then I know I'm being very joking, but I was actually very seriously sad back then. And then, and that was 2011. Okay, I call it my dark year. And then it, we enter into 2012, right? And then I, I'm, I, th- I think I'm going to step down from Emmaus, but my spiritual leaders asked me, do you want to come on full time? Quit your job, no money, no steady paycheck, and do this college ministry all the time. And then I asked the Lord, and unfortunately, <laughs> the children of God, we can hear the Lord's voice. And I do have a healthy fear of the Lord. So I said, and it was very clear that the Lord said, yes, this is what I want for you. And it was very clear that if I said no, I would be in disobedience. So I said, I trust you, Lord, but I'm not happy. Okay, just to be clear, I'm not happy with you, but I trust you. Okay. And then I entered full-time ministry. And then 2012 started. I went to Nepal. The day I got back from mission trip, serving the Lord again, I find out my dad passed away. I'm support raising, have no money, I still have no friends, I um, just started a full-time ministry with a ministry I don't really like, and um, I serve the Lord on missions, and the day I get back, my dad passes away, so I've got to go to America, attend his funeral, and then start ministering right after, and I just thought, God, why is this happening to me? I'm giving you everything. I've given you everything. I've laid down my whole life and my dreams and desires. Why is this happening to me? But I continued on with it. I continued to serve even when I wanted to give up. I continued to trust God even when my strength and my heart failed. And it didn't mean I was pleasant all the time. If you guys knew me in 2011, you would know I wasn't pleasant all the time. The joyful, lifeful Rona that you see now I was not like this in 2011, okay? I was very, very different and sad and angry. Um, But I stuck with it. And I trusted the Lord. Because more than I knew anything else, I knew that he was good. And even if I didn't see that, I knew it. And I wanted to follow him. And so that season passed, guys. It passes. And what I found was, God ushering me into Emmaus and welcoming team right away when I got here was one of the most loving things he could have ever done for me because he immediately moved me from a place of being so self-focused to I have no choice but to be others focused. I can't be like, oh, Rona has no friends, Rona's life is da-da-da, when there are literally newcomers looking at me, asking me what the event is, you know? I can't do that when there are literally students looking at me. All of my time was spent on other people. It was impossible for me to be selfish then, even though I tried very hard, okay? I tried really, really hard. With all the little time I had, I was definitely thinking about myself, okay? And how my life was horrible. But God wouldn't let me, and he kept pushing me into situations where I had to be his kingdom-focused, Jesus-focused, go out to another prayer meeting and another one and another one, and then think about the things on God's heart and then think about the things on other people's heart and had to listen to everybody's problems. And then soon I began to realize God's heart for all these things. And soon I began to forget about myself. And then one day I woke up and realized that my problems aren't really my problems anymore. 
that I've got amazing friends to my right and my left that God gave me. I've got more free time than I did in a long time. And I have this joy that I don't understand where it came from. I have this peace that I don't understand where it came from either. And when I have the temptation to want to pull back and save my life and hold on tightly to what I have because I'm in lack, I just remember that year and remember, man, I just got to get into the Lord's presence. I got to get in on the Lord's business right now. I got to get in on what he's doing. I got to get even more plugged into the ministry and what's going on in people's hearts because I know the more I give, the more I gain, right? I don't understand how it works, guys. It just does, okay? Let me tell you that it does, okay? So Jesus, lesson one, teaches us that it's in giving that we gain. And, um, you know, to reiterate kind of what I, I was explaining in my story is that if you concern yourself with God's kingdom, he will take care of you. If you are all about doing God's will, he will never let you be in lack. If you are all about him, he will be all about you. I promise. Sometimes we don't give God an opportunity to provide for us, give us good things, because we're so preoccupied taking care of ourselves. He has no opening to give us things from his hand to bless us because we got ourselves covered, right? Give of yourself and then let God take care of you. It's a lot better. It's so much better than trying to strive and save and take care of yourself. God takes care of us better than we take care of ourselves. Okay, that's lesson one. It's in giving that we gain. And number two, lesson two, that Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, teaches us in the curriculum of the kingdom is um, gain in the kingdom is thankfulness. Okay? If greatness is in giving, then lesson two is Jesus' strategy to get ahead of the game. Okay? If you want to know how to get on top, get in the front, be in front of the game, this is Jesus' strategy for us. He says in Mark 4.25, For to the one who has, more will be given. The one who has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. To the one who has, more will be given. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. Okay? Wow, think about that. When I first read that, I was angry because I have a big heart for the poor, the impoverished of the world. And I was like, what the heck, Jesus? Are you talking about stealing or like taking from the poor and giving to the rich? That's the opposite of, of Robin Hood. And I love Robin Hood. Okay? So what is Jesus talking about here? That's not what he's talking about, okay? He's not talking about giving more to the rich and taking from the poor. So what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is just is talking about perspective and thankfulness, okay? He's talking about perspective and thankfulness. And I'll explain. To the one he has, to the one who has, to the one who has, that person, person A, let's say, to the one who has, this is the person Jesus is addressing, okay? To the one who has, this is the kind of person who never stops remembering what God has done for them. 
God, I remember when you saved me, when you healed me, when you delivered me, when you took all that depression and shame away, when you poured out your spirit into my life, when you changed in my family, when you changed in my friends, when you surrounded me with all this good stuff. I remember everything you've done, all your goodness, all throughout my life, God. They're always recounting the Lord's goodness in their lives. And they're always living with the kingdom mindset that they have everything in Christ. They're full. They're full of the goodness of God, and they know they have everything in Christ. And because of that, they can't help but be thankful all the time because they remember the Lord's goodness. They're always walking around giving God thanks because of what he's done. And to people like this who have... As in, they have gratefulness for what God has already done. God says, I'm going to give you more. To him who has, more will be given. Okay? To him who has, more will be given. And I guess we can all reason that the second person Jesus addresses, to the one who has not. To the one who has not. Okay? Person B. This is the kind of person who's also saved, healed, delivered, God has spoken to, given to, but they easily just forget, okay? They forget what God has done. They look only to what they still do not have, okay? Their life is full of things they don't have. They look at what others have and they don't have. They bitterly turn to God and say, you have not delivered on the promises you've given me, God. Why are you withholding from me, okay? I don't have, I don't have. I lack, I lack, I lack, okay? How can you ask me to give more when I already lack so much? The focus is on what they do not have. They truly believe they have nothing, even though they've been given just as much as person A, okay? But they believe they've been given nothing, and that's the difference. To people like this, Jesus says, even what they have will be taken from them. To have something taken from you means you actually have it, right? You can't have something taken from you if you don't have anything. So that means these people actually do have something, but um, they don't realize they have it, okay? He has indeed blessed them, but there is only selfishness, entitlement, and lack in their minds. And they're so focused on what they don't have that they fail to recognize what God has given them. And to these people, God says, I'm just going to take away even what you have because you don't realize you have it anyway, okay? And indeed, you will have nothing, okay? How do you get more, get ahead, and get extra credit in the kingdom? To stay in a place of constant thankfulness gratefulness for what God has done, to remember and recount his goodness in our lives. To the one who has, even more will be given. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. And lesson three, okay, if our real education is in the kingdom of heaven, and if Jesus is our rabbi, what kind of grades would we get, all right? Jesus taught us that um, significance and greatness is in giving. He taught us that gain and advancement come from gratefulness and thankfulness. But what about tests? What about when push comes to shove, how do we get graded in this kingdom academy? Okay? What is our GPA going to be? What are the tests going to look like? <clears throat> what kind of test does our rabbi Jesus give us? <clears throat> 
If you were to be given a test by God, how do you think you would do? I'm going to pause. Really, how do you think you would do? If God were to give us a test, how would we do? Okay. What would that test look like? <laughs> okay. I want us to turn to another book in our Bible study, Romans. Okay. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 11. Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 11. And if we were to be given a test, I will answer how we would do. Okay? We, re- we will all read this. This is how we do. God says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understand. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then look down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin are death. Okay? So what's our grade, guys, in the kingdom? Did we pass or fail? Yeah, we got a big, fat F. Okay? We got a big, fat F. All of us. All. It said all, okay? None is righteous. Not even one. It said it twice. None is righteous. No, not one. So in case anybody was like, I'm, I'm righteous, or I actually know somebody who's really righteous, it said, none is righteous. No, not one. Okay? The Bible actually said it like that because they knew. Some people were going to be like, no. No, somebody's righteous. Okay? No! None is righteous. All have sinned, and the wages of sin are death. We all failed. We all bombed the test. Not one of us made a passing or decent grade. Not one of us lived up to the perfect standard of holiness that we've been called to. Not one of us are selfless. Not one of us have pursued God with all our hearts. All have sinned. And if we all got what we deserved, we would get death. Truth. Okay? But at this moment, at this reality, at this revelation, Christianity It's here that Christianity differs from every other religion and belief system, okay? Because God came at this moment when we have all got a big fat F, and he came, Christ incarnate, he walked the earth, and he took the test on our behalf, okay? And I want you all to turn with me to Mark 14, Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 32. Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 32. And I'm going to read through, and I'm going to call out the verses for us to follow along, okay? And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, the night before Jesus' biggest test, 
when everyone he knew would betray him, when he would be mocked and beaten, and when the sins of the world and the wrath of God would be placed on him, he fell on his knees and prayed to the Father, God, if possible, I don't want to do this, but I'm not going to save my life. I'm going to lay it down. Not my will, but yours be done. Right? Where we went our own way, where we chose our own life, where we chose to hold on to our life and save our life, Jesus chose to follow through and lay his life down on our behalf. And he said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And I want you to turn another chapter down to Mark 15. Mark 15, starting with verse 16. Mark chapter 15, 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, the night before Jesus' big test, the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus decided to go through with it. All the wrath of God, the sins, and the shame of the world, he chose to take it on himself. It was all laid on him. The chief priests, they mocked him and said, Jesus, save your own life. Come down from the cross. Hold on to your own life. What has the Father given to you? Save your own life. You saved other people. Why not save yourself? But you see, Jesus, his life wasn't taken from him. He laid it down of his own accord. It was his choice and his good pleasure to lay down his life for us. He chose to lay it down on our behalf because we, all of us, failed the test. All of us. The curtain, the veil, it says, was torn. Our failing test grade all the times we didn't measure up, the times we fell short, the times we didn't give our life, the times we walked away from God, he tore that test paper completely in two. And then Jesus handed you his own test paper, and it had a big, fat A-plus on it, completely perfect, everything completely perfect to a T. And this is the gospel of God's grace. 
This is what the cross has done for us. We could never have passed that test. Through his perfect test grade, though, Jesus abolished that whole system of gaining holiness and righteousness and rightness with God through our performance and striving. Through his perfect test grade, we don't have to go by that system anymore. You see, we've all been given something we wholly do not deserve, not even one of us. And whether you've never received this gift of salvation, this A-plus in the kingdom, or if you've been walking with God for a long time, um, the truth is we still don't deserve it. If we've been walking with God for 20 years and faithfully laying down our life every day serving him, we still would not earn what God has done for us, ever. We could never, ever, ever earn what he has done for us, no matter how much we give. We still aren't anywhere near earning our own salvation. We still got far better than we deserved, okay? And it's through his grace that we've been given everything. And so tonight, I want to spend some time in prayer. And I want us to pray because I feel like when it's a really stressful time in our lives, we've got tests our parents' expectations, our own expectations, scholarships that we got to keep up or we're going to lose it. We've got all this pressure. It's so easy to think my life is in the hands of this success. My, my life is in the hands of this thing. My value and worth and significance lie here. Success is defined like this. And then I want us to pause for just a little bit, though, And as we've been sitting at the feet of Jesus, our true rabbi, the rabbi that not only taught us to live truth, but he actually walked the walk. He actually paid our price on the cross. And I want us to think about our true and good teacher, Jesus, and the way that he's been teaching us of his heart, of the kingdom ways. What is true greatness in the kingdom? What is true gain in the kingdom? And what about that big fat F on our test in the kingdom? And I want everyone to close your eyes tonight and forget about your test. Forget about whatever else we put our worth and value in. Forget about the people sitting around you. I promise they're not thinking about you anyway. Just forget about all of it and close your eyes and imagine yourself sitting at the feet of Jesus, walking with him like these disciples. He's pouring out his heart and his life. He only had three years. He's teaching them his ways, and he kept telling them he's going to go to that cross. He's going to be beaten and crucified for our sins. And I want you to just remember all that God has done for you from the very beginning of your walk with him when you were just a child you're just foolish and he rescued you when that first moment of grace came in your life and you saw his goodness when God saved you out of the miry clay I want us to remember the Lord's goodness together